0: Hello and welcome to On The Dresser, your bi-weekly dose of sex, gender, culture, and politics. My name is Lauren Kylie, and I will be your host for this very special feature interview episode and I am very excited to introduce our guest, award-winning porn star, an adult industry activist, Ella Darling. Ella is a leader in virtual reality porn and webcamming, former librarian, and current president of APAC, the Adult Performer Advocacy Committee. This conversation has nothing but just awesome talking points porn getting involved in local politics virtual reality cosplay books library services teledildonics and more so let's get right to the good stuff hello ella and welcome to on the dresser um, as a sex worker and an activist, what was what was your first moment of sort of combining the two and doing activism for sex work? How did you
1: get involved in that? You know, it was I want to say five or six years ago. There was a an OSHA meeting in downtown Los Angeles, and at the time, I had been doing porn for I think maybe just a year. Um, either a year or a few months, depending on how long it's been, because I I really don't remember. Mm -hmm. But I heard about this meeting um, at City Hall um, where the Free Speech Coalition was calling on performer voices to come out and speak on behalf of our industry and our rights and what we wanted as the actual laborers and the workers. And so I went to City Hall and I when they asked for commentary, I stood up and I spoke my piece, and I, you know, kind of called them out on some things that seemed really unfair and uh, counterintuitive to the work that they're trying to do in protecting the workers. And um, and still, there, someone took a photo of me on that day, on that first day, and I have this very in- inquisitive, quizzical unattractive look <laughs> on my face and it's still a photo that shows up in articles to this day but it um that was the first opportunity that I saw to combine the activism that had been really important to me for most of my grown-up life to bring into my my new work my new career that I had just only really started not not too long before that and um and so yeah it was at a, a Cal OSHA meeting in downtown LA and since then i have been talking to osha several times a year um s- since that initial meeting i think that my relationship with the osha i don't remember if that was the division or the standards board because i didn't know the difference at the time but um in any case my relationship with osha has outlived every other relationship i've had with any romantic partner so <laughs> i feel like i'm kind of going steady with them and i I've seen the way that the relationship between OSHA and the adult industry has evolved since then, from that first day when it really felt like they were just trying to shut us out and just adamantly refusing to listen to our voices, to this past month when there was a meeting with the OSHA division um, up in Oakland, and... You know, the Standards Board of OSHA, they meet once a month and we, uh, my organization, APAC, the Adult Performer Advocacy Committee, we have a representative. So we have a representative from our organization attend the Standards Board meetings along with the Free Speech Coalition. And we have been very consistent and very adamant about attending these meetings. And over the course of the past year or so, they have really started to understand that we are we're in it for the long haul. We are the people who are the stakeholders in this industry, and our voices need to be heard and deserve to be heard. You know, some people really went to bat for us to make sure that that my organization had some seats at the table because we are the actual laborers. We, My organization re- represents the workforce, and OSHA granted us those seats. Nice. And it was a really big—I felt like it was maybe not a turning point, but definitely— something that made me feel very emboldened and very uh, excited about how our industry is working with OSHA and how OSHA is starting to recognize us as a very legitimate voice in this discussion, as, as we should be. Because what we've said all along, what, something I've always said, is that you don't help a group of people whose voices are silenced by speaking for them. You help them by giving them a voice and amplifying that voice, giving them a platform, that is how you help a group of people who you think lack voice on the situation. And um, I've been really pleased with the way the Free Speech Coalition has recognized that and worked very hard to allow us to have a voice and not speak for us, um, just consistently, even in small, in small ways. Where, you know, we at that meeting, the head of the FSC, Eric, um, would talk about how you know, how our perspectives are important. And then he would deflect and say, actually, you know, let me let them speak for themselves because that's why they're here. And that's what we want. Yeah. We just want to be heard. We want our voices to be considered and we want to be able to speak for ourselves. We are by the very definition of our industry adults. We have agency and we want to be able to have a, a say in the way that our, our organization is, or our industry is uh, treated in terms of workplace safety
0: and I agree with you. It feels like a huge victory to have OSHA finally say sex work is work, even if they're just saying it implicitly by allowing allowing your group a seat. That is That feels huge. I completely agree with that sentiment.
1: It um, is. It's very huge. And I'm very thankful for Cal OSHA for the ways that they've made space for us because they could easily decide to shut us out and decide to just listen to the petitioners and they, and they haven't been doing that. And I think that it's really big to recognize that on, on their behalf. And
0: for other sex workers in Los Angeles, thank you for pushing your way into those meetings
1: for those of us who can't make all of them. We appreciate that. Um, It's definitely a huge effort amongst a lot of people. It's a grassroots effort and I am thankful for everybody in my industry who has set aside the time, um, frequently waking up at three o'clock in the morning to get into a van to drive hours and hours just to have their voices be heard. I am just so thankful for the way that our industry has come together. That is so good to hear.
0: Um, So speaking of politics, uh, you were the runner up for the Democratic Assembly District Delegate in January.
1: Um, um, I was the second, runner up. second runner-up. I don't want to toot my own <laughs> horn too much. I mean, I still lost, so let's acknowledge that. Um, but yeah, it was actually very inspiring. The way that worked, it was um, it's by district in California, mm-hmm. and so I was the second runner-up uh, for my district, and that feels like a really big accomplishment, honestly, because someone from from our background, from our industry, I I say our industry. From the porn industry. And I don't want to make that so it can be our, yeah, we're good. I don't want to be presumptuous. (laughs) I know everybody has different walks. There's no one right walk through life or through sex work. But for someone from the the porn industry to achieve that is incredibly inspiring. And I Mm -hmm. I, I sound like a jerk talking about myself as being inspiring, but it's really (laughs) heartening. I, I don't think you sound like a jerk. I think you <laughs> sound like you're taking pride in a very remarkable accomplishment. <laughs> I am proud of it. And so the way it works is there's like, there's 14 seats per district. My district happened to be one that was basically swept by some, um, some establishment Democrats that had a lot of money and a lot of power behind them. They were relatives of people who were already legislators in California. And so it was sort of a, an uphill battle to begin with, but of all the people that ran, and there were many in my district to be the second runner up after the people who had basically everything handed to them and everything sort of laid out for them Mm -hmm. was really big because I was running on a slate of people who have done a lot of work for the democratic party and for politics in California in general. Also the fact that this slate of people, so you run as a slate, which means you find other people who share your beliefs or share your ideology mm-hmm. and you run together because there are several seats available. And so, you know, if I get 10 people to come to vote for me and I encourage them to vote for my whole slate and everybody else in the slate does the same thing, then we rack up those votes exponentially. So um, nice. to run on a slate of people who didn't know who I, wa- who I was, they had no idea who I was. A friend of mine introduced me to them because we were all from a progressive sort of Bernie Kratt <laughs> um, group. And to come to this group where I don't know any of them and say, hey, guys, look, I am a porn performer. Here are my perspectives. Here's the community I come from that I represent. If that doesn't work for you, that's fine. Tell me now. I don't want to do anything that might, you know, jeopardize your political future. If, If you're from Uh, A constituency or or if you represent a group of people who are going to be really not okay with the fact that you're doing politics with someone in porn, I respect it. Just let me know and I will, you know, bow out gracefully. And from the first meeting where I was like, look, guys, here's the thing. They were all so supportive. They recognized the fact that my industry is a very important facet of that district because it's the North Hollywood sort of valley-ish area. Oh, yeah. And they were like, no, your voice is important. Your organization, your industry is important in this district. You serve a very important role here and your voice matters. And never at any point did any of the people that I was running with show any apprehension or reluctance to associate with me. They were nothing but supportive. And it was just so inspiring. Um, even at the end of the day, when we all lost me and another person from, from my slate were the runners up and, um, and just afterwards, you know, we sort of had a little, a little talk, a little huddle, and um, my friend Susie, who's also a performer, and also she works. Suzy Q. She's also Susie Q. She's also been on our show. I love Susie Q. So and do Susie we. Q. It was this sort of like mom moment where she was like, Hey guys, I just want to say thank you so much for accepting Ella and letting her run with you guys and for supporting her. And it was like, (laughs) it was like mom, like thanking my friends, forgiving my friends. But it it was just, it was really cool. At the end of the day, these people accepted me for who I was and for what I do. And they accepted my role and they appreciated my contributions. And that was really huge for me. Um, I worked really hard within this this group. We only had about a month or so from the the deadline to apply until voting day and voting day was uh oh. January 7th or 8th. So really you have like a week because nobody's you can talk to everybody you want to talk to in December, but January is next year. Yeah. So the actual work needs to be done the week of the event. And yeah, it was just really cool. I I didn't want to tap adult industry resources um, until sort of the last minute because I didn't want it to become a, a spectacle. Mm-hmm. I didn't want it to be like, oh, a porn star is doing this thing because I, I didn't feel like that was really what is that, what I was after. I'm not trying to be the porn star who's doing this thing. I'm a concerned citizen who is taking action. And I wanted support from my community, but I, I didn't really reach out to any adult industry press until a few days before the vote because I didn't want it to grow into something that wasn't representative of what I was trying to do.
0: That's a tough balance to walk. So do you have any plans to continue working with the Democratic Party specifically?
1: I have plans to continue doing anything I can politically to support sex workers and to support my industry. And if that lies in the Democratic Party, then I will definitely continue. If that lies elsewhere, then I will pursue that as well.
0: That was an amazingly politic answer. That was per- <laughs> <laughs> that was actually the perfect answer to that. Thank you. So working with the Democratic Party, one of their most popular politicians right now is newly elected Senator Kamala Harris, who has a very contentious relationship with most sex workers, particularly because of her actions trying to shut down Backpage in the name of human trafficking. And I was wondering if you had any commentary on
1: that. I think that Kamala Harris has a lot of good ideas and a lot of good intentions, and so I don't want to paint. I, I don't believe in black and white for the most part. I think there are uh, many, many shades in between. I'm not going <laughs> to shout out that horrible, horrible nope. BDSM nonsense, but we're, we're not you know doing what I'm that. Yeah. Not doing that. I think that she's incredibly misguided and wrongheaded when it comes to her actions against Backpage. I. Um, I have been vocal about this on Twitter, and I've been blocked by several Democratic um, figureheads and, and people who represent people in the Democratic Party in my opposition to her and called just a troll because I happen to oppose this, this thing that she's done against Backpage. The thing is, there are many different kinds of sex work. There's the legal sex work, which I do in porn. There's illegal sex work. There's a lot in between, and there are a lot, there's a lot of overlap. And there are sex workers who have uh, a reliance on the work they do, which is most of us, Mm -hmm. um, and they have to work within the boundaries that they can. By shutting down Backpage, it takes a level of safety away from the people who are doing the work that they do because they have to to support themselves because this is the work that's available to them and the work that makes sense for them. It takes away the safety of um, vetting their clients online on finding clientele online. It's the difference between being someone who is privileged enough, but safe enough to do the sex work they do behind several layers of um, anonymity and professional vetting and being someone who is a streetwalker sex worker.
0: Mm-hmm. There's,
1: I do not intend to imply that being a streetwalker sex worker or being uh, an online sex worker in any regard are... This isn't a value judgment, Mm -hmm. but there's a level of safety offered to sex workers who can create ads online, accept um, clients on a a case-by-case basis, and vet them through their personal vetting methods that keeps a huge swath of the sex worker community safe. Mm -hmm. And by taking away Backpage, it takes away this opportunity for these people frequently women, men, people of color, trans people, multi-marginalized multi people, and giving them a safe way to access the work that they have to do, that they really don't have any other option um, that makes sense for them, and work that, by the way, Amnesty International completely supports, mm-hmm. which happens to be illegal, but also happens to be one of the oldest forms of professional work in humanity. It takes away a huge layer of safety. And In not even an,
0: just for the illegal work. I know for, there's a number. There are dumps. Yeah. There's, there's
1: fetish workers. There's, there's, even there's fetish so many porn. people.
0: Like, that's that's I, how I got some of my first gigs was, well, I'm old, so it was Craigslist, but that was, same. that's where when was. Craig,
1: when Craigslist shut down their adult gigs, I lost so many opportunities. I've... Up until about two years ago, I never had an agent, and I never needed an agent, because I could find the work I needed to get through Craigslist. Mm -hmm. And once Craigslist was pressured to shut down their adult gig section, I mean, I got my first ever adult work through Craigslist. I got my first ever porn scene with with kink.com through Craigslist. Craigslist was great, and then they shut down the adult gig section, which forced a bunch of people to, to Backpage, which was the only thing that was really left for them to advertise their services. Some of it was legal, but you're absolutely right, much of it wasn't. Mm-hmm. And it's all in the name of preventing trafficking, which is a really palatable, nice way to oppose sex work and when you get into the statistics of trafficking, and when you investigate the (laughs) sources, and the sources of those sources, so many educators, and I'm not talking, you know, some person who decided to Google or Wikipedia something, I'm talking like real sex educators, professors, actual university professors, whom I have spoke, uh, whose classes I've spoken at, Mm -hmm. um, a lot of that data is completely confounded. when it comes down to even calling the FBI to vet their trafficking resources and and the the data they have on trafficking, mm-hmm. this isn't one person. This is a lot of people, a lot of educators who get to that point, and it turns out the FBI doesn't even know where that data comes from. They just have it in their database, and so they espouse it, even though there's no hard facts to to actually back it up. And so people love to oppose sex work and porn and anything adult-oriented because um, it supports trafficking. But when you get right down to that, when we really examine that, trafficking is way more than sex work. Trafficking is, you know, um, au pairs who are hired in households from other countries and then sort of held hostage and treated as um, mm-hmm. as just... They just don't have rights, really. They're not, I mean, their passports are withheld from them until they complete this work. They're indentured servants, essentially. Um, Trafficking can be in any field, but when it's sex work, because it allows people to devalue legal, well, not legal, but consensual sex work and legal sex work at the same time. I mean, people claim that porn is a bunch of trafficked victims and that's so hilarious to me because if you knew how many willing porn performers <laughs> are waiting to get gigs who end up having to do like non-adult work just to support work, the work they do in porn, it's like we don't need to traffic people. There are plenty of people lined up waiting to do this work. but um, But yeah, it's just, it's absurd and it's, shrouded in this fear of sex this fear of people who um who embrace sex and embrace sexuality and especially women like women who decide to reclaim and take back their control over their own sexuality and this is something that is so vilified by so many facets of our culture and because it happens to involve sex it's suddenly treated as something that um you must be a victim if you're engaging in it this is something I, I even find um, when I go to these OSHA meetings. They talk about the AIDS Healthcare Foundation. We'll talk about how, you know, we surveyed a bunch of sex workers or a bunch of porn performers and something like, I think they said 10% said that they did something on a set or on a shoot that they didn't want to do. That statement sounds so alarming. Like, oh my gosh, these porn performers are doing work that they don't want to do. Yeah, but, but what when you treat it, work too? That's the thing. It's work. At the end of the day, it's work. How many people can say in their jobs, I was, uh, let's just completely disregard sex work. How many people can say in the course of the work that you do in your job, in your career, have you ever done something you didn't want to do? Because I think it's pretty much across the board. Everybody at some point in their job does something they don't want to do. I mean, that's the definition of a job. You don't want to do your job. Otherwise, it would just be a hobby. That's like, why you get paid for it. That's why you get paid for it. But once you introduce sex into the equation, suddenly it's victimization. Mm-hmm. It, it It's infantilizing, frankly. Like, Yeah, sometimes I do work at my job that I don't want to do. That doesn't mean I'm a victim. That means I'm someone who's employed to do a job. Like. It's, it's absurd. Like, even when I work with my friends, sometimes it's like, well, I really don't want to be tickled right now. It's like, I hate being tickled, but because Me that's what I'm hired too. to do today. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And like, is that something like, am I suddenly a victim of the scary trafficking? Ind- no, <laughs> tickle it's just, traffickers? traffickers. <laughs> yeah, it's a job and I'm doing the work that I was hired to do because it's my job. And at any point I could easily say like, Hey, I don't want to do this. I'm gonna leave now, just like anybody else in any other job can. But because you introduce sex into it, suddenly we're not just employees or workers or contractors who are doing a job that they're paid to do, suddenly we're victims. And it's this introduction of victimization, it's completely infantilizing because it implies that simply because sex is a part of my work, I suddenly no longer have agency or no longer have a say over what I choose to do as an adult woman who has chosen this career for herself. I was at my 10 year high school reunion. I was talking to one of the guys I went to high school with and I was talking to him about his job. I was like, hey, cool. What do you do? And he worked for a trucking company. He's like, oh, cool. Do you like it? How is that? And he was like, no, I hate it. I work really long hours. It's backbreaking work. At the end of the day, my back hurts, my feet hurt. Like, I've got this weird infection on my feet because I'm on my feet all day. Mm -hmm. Like, it's really rough. Like, I I mean, I do it because it pays a lot of money, but I, yeah, I, I hate it. I was like, wow. If I talked about my job, the way that he just talked about his job, there are entire organizations that exist to rescue me from it. Mm -hmm. But because my job involves sex, suddenly it's not something I'm doing just because it's all in a day's work. Suddenly I am a victim of some faceless monster, and that's absurd.
0: Would you like to talk about CAM4VR?
1: And where I, that's going? Would yes. I would love to. I could talk about virtual reality all day long. I could probably talk your ear right off. It would fall off right in your hands and you wouldn't know what to do. Um, So Cam4VR. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Girl after my own heart. So Cam4VR is my livelihood right now. It's everything that I'm working on. It's everything I'm focusing on. I've been doing adult virtual reality content for almost three years at this point. And my business partner and I, we've done everything there is to do at the intersection of adult and VR. And we settled on what we found to be the most compelling use of the VR medium. And that is a live virtual reality webcam platform How does where that you can- work? So you put on your VR headset and you select the performer that you want to watch and you are transported to their actual bedroom or their actual space. And so, for example, when you come into my CAM4VR cam room, you look around and you see my actual bedroom. It's a 3D 360 virtual reality representation of the place I actually live. You look in the corner and you see some creepy like skulls and (laughs) headstones and you look in another corner and there's this like mannequin wearing a bedazzled gas mask. And you get a real sense of who I am, I which is basically
0: a really teenage goth. I want to see that bedazzled gas mask. That
1: sounds amazing. It's awesome. And so you get here. And before I even say a word, you get a very strong sense of who I am. And you feel like you are actually in my personal space. You feel like you're in my home with me because ostensibly you are. Mm-hmm. And so when I start to forge a relationship with the people who are watching me on cam, It's a much closer relationship and the relationship accelerates at a much more rapid pace than it would in a traditional 2D analog. So it's a really cool, it's very immersive, it's very intimate. The people I talk to in VR on cam feel a sense of closeness with me that usually takes weeks to establish with someone just in a regular cam platform. Mm -hmm. And because it's in virtual reality, it's compelling, it's immersive, it's intimate. And it's just awesome. And so Cam4VR is a platform that I co-founded. So I'm the world's first VR cam girl. Ooh, and congratulations. Thank you. And we've branded it as Cam4VR. We teamed up with a really great company called Cam4. And so Cam4VR is an extension of the first ever live webcam platform in virtual reality. And it's really cool. You can participate basically for free. You go to cam4.com and you create an account. And it's a freemium experience so you can go and you can watch performers in virtual reality or if you don't have a vr headset you can watch it on your phone or your browser and you can click and drag or pan around and you can still see the 360 capture and you can see a 360 view of the performer you're watching which is really cool but if you do have a vr headset and we support most of them then you can engage in virtual reality where when you put on the ad set you really feel like you're present you feel like you're there um, and we're just now introducing uh, what we call live touch, where we incorporate teledildonics devices, everything from like Kiru and Levens to, um, there are several others. It's a live, instantly reactive sense of touch that coincides with the live, immediate con- connection that you're forging with the performer in front of you. And it's so intense and so cool. And I'm so excited about it. So if you go to camforwardcom slash VR, You can check out this really cool experience. And yeah, I'm just super excited about it. It's the most gripping experience I've ever had um, (laughs) while watching an an adult production. I've personally trained most of the performers on the site. I know them. And even still, when I put on the headset and I go and I just watch them and sort of interact with them a little bit in VR, I still feel like really like... Twitter twitterpated like oh my <laughs> goodness oh oh my and I just feel so engrossed and it's awesome and I'm really lucky that I happen to have fallen in love with the medium and the platform that I happen to help develop because it's just amazing it's so cool
0: how does that work on the performers end what do you have to do to make your camera room VR friendly
1: and accessible So we have a camera that we provide to the performers and it creates it's basically it creates a 3d 360 capture of their space and then we broadcast on top of it. As a performer, you need to just make sure that everything in your room is presentable for the camera. So for me, that means Dragging a bunch of suitcases and clothing out into my hallway. uh, Shoving things under the bed and making sure the pets are locked out. Oh my gosh, my dog somehow knows when there's a camera about to broadcast. Like He'll ignore me all day and then as soon as the camera's on, he's like up in my shit. He just is right there. I've had my cat interrupt at
0: least two different cam shows because I didn't realize she was hiding in my bedroom and then you know, there I am performing and meow, there's a ginger kitty on
1: your screen. Yep. yep. Absolutely. <laughs> I feel you. So you just need to make sure that, I mean, on the performer's end, you need to make mm-hmm. sure that you don't have anything that's personally identifying. So yeah. if you're someone who has like, I don't know, like your degree with your legal name hanging on the wall or like a pile of mail that has, you know, large text, you, you just want to make sure that there's nothing in your room that you wouldn't want someone to see on the internet. You know, family photos, for example, just just flip it down. But ultimately, from the performer's end, there's a little bit of uh, of pre-production that they need to do and a couple of tips that they give them that I give them in terms of how to be a really good performer, how to convey, The most compelling aspects of the persona that you've cultivated for yourself but when it comes down to it it's very similar to regular camming it's just you you tend to recognize the people who are watching you in vr because they tend to be really nice and uh and a lot kinder because they feel like you're they're in your home with you and if you're in someone's home you're not going to be a jerk you're not going to troll them i mean for the most part i've noticed a sense of sort of uh, community policing almost that happens where the people who are watching me in VR, if someone comes in and they're like being a jerk, those people would be like, hey, you can't talk to her like that. What's What are you doing, dude? Stop it. That's awesome. And I don't even have to say anything. And it's really cool. But yeah, it's just, it's a whole new level. It's so engrossing and so engaging. And I absolutely love it. I'm completely, completely in love with the work that I do. Sometime this year, we're going to be introducing a marketplace on Camp 4 where performers can pre-record their virtual reality content and sell it as a pre-recorded thing through the site. And that's really cool because, I mean, obviously it's awesome, but also right now in the VR space, most of the VR content is being produced by big studios who have access to expensive cameras and who have training in post-production and stitching, which means, you know, if you have 12 cameras running all at once, you have to be able to stitch each of those camera views together into a complete sphere Two spheres, actually, for your left eye and for your right eye. And because of the way that our software and our hardware work, we sort of circumvent that for the performers. The performers don't need to spend a bunch of money or learn a bunch of new, new production skills. They can essentially use the skills that they're trained in to be a VR camp performer to create their own content in VR and sell that through the site. And in a way, it sort of democratizes VR porn in a way that we have seen over the past decade in regular porn, with the advent of tube or not tube sites, but uh, clip sites and, and sites yeah. where, as a yeah, as a performer or as a, an indie producer, you can take whatever you have to create content and sell it and create some sort of fan base and really create a niche for yourself. That's what I want to do for VR porn with Camp Four VR. That sounds absolutely amazing. That I, literally the next
0: thing I had written down was how how can we make this more accessible for sex workers who the biggest limitation would be the equipment and production
1: but you're already on top of that which is absolutely awesome. as we move forward into the future like we generally provide the the cameras for people eventually we might just for the sake of getting more people into VR camming we might allow them to to purchase the equipment in some way but even then it's like it's just so so much more accessible in terms of what you would need to put into production for any kind of production And I really want to see a way to make this realm of the adult industry accessible. And I want to see a way for performers to dominate it because we are the people who are the biggest stakeholders. We are the ones who are taking the greatest risk. We're the ones who are closing so many doors for ourselves by being naked on the Internet or just by being risque on the Internet. You know, there's so many opportunities that we are just shutting away in the work that we're doing that I think that performers really deserve to have opportunities presented to them. And I think that they deserve to be at the forefront.
0: I I mean, as, as a performer, I'm obviously biased, but that sounds amazing to me like that. Uh, I love the idea of making the technology accessible. And also I love the part of not having to learn a bunch of new production skills because that was, Definitely one of the biggest hurdles for me and other, and other people I know who would probably produce their own videos if it weren't for learning how to run your camera, learning how to do your lighting, let alone editing and sound editing, and you know the, the long list of things that you learn, sort of as you go along. Um,
1: I would produce so much more if I didn't have to sit and edit video. I I would rather have a, an elective root canal. then edit video for a week. Like I I hate it. And so for me what's really important is breaking down the barriers between the performer and just presenting something they've produced. I want to make it as easy as possible and as high quality as possible also. Because in virtual reality there's a lot of great content, but it's very easy to produce low quality content and because this is such a new niche that's such a new platform if someone's first experience in virtual reality is a really lackluster production and frequently people like when they hear about virtual reality the first thing they think of is porn and so if their first experience in vr is low quality production that isn't really stitched together correctly and it just doesn't really convey the medium very well and if they're watching it on you know, something that is kind of entry-level device, like a cardboard device, which is great sometimes, Mm -hmm. but isn't as high quality as, you know, the Oculus Rift or the HTC Vive, for example. If we have a low-quality production on a lower-quality experience, that could turn someone off from VR altogether, and it could take years to bring them back into the medium and to get them to really embrace it again. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's, it's a little bit selfish, because I want... Performers to be able to produce this content, but I want them to perf- to produce it in a way that's really high quality and that looks really good. And with the platform we're creating, you can do that. So, so that's sort of where I'm at with that. In the meantime, we are introducing the live touch. So, uh, in VR, you'll be able to use your telescopics devices. That's launching very soon. In fact, by the time this goes live, it's probably already been implemented onto the Cam4 yeah. Cam site. We're launching a new camera that has, uh, it's much higher quality and it's much easier to use from the performer's end. So that's going to be really cool. Sometime in the next period of time, short period of time, we're also going to have functionality where if you go into a private show with a VR performer, through the microphone in your VR headset, you'll be able to speak and the performer will hear you and speak right back. So it's absolutely voice to voice. It's incredibly intimate and very engaging compelling experience it's really cool yeah and I think some of the best clients I've had have been the ones who are focused
0: on that intimacy and the talking as a, you know as opposed to the one-handed typing exactly it's such a different experience like both qualitatively for the client and also in terms of if if you're the performer
1: you're probably going to get a longer
0: show which is always
1: good Exactly. I, I'm always, I want to create a great experience for the consumers. But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, my concern is always for the performers and giving them the best opportunities and experiences that they can have. Because when they're emboldened and empowered to do great stuff, the, the consumers will follow immediately. I mean, the performers are the ones who bring their fans to the table. So I want to make things easy and awesome for them.
0: Well, and porn has a long history on being on the front edge of digital effects and movie making technology. So this could be really, really interesting to see where VR goes in general for movies, even, even outside of porn, because I can't think of anything even analogous to what you're talking about of
1: having someone really feel like they're in the room with you. Absolutely, absolutely. And I feel like I agree to an extent. I think over the past few years with the advent and the proliferation of tube sites and torrenting and illegal downloads, I think that we've sort of, not we, but we as a culture have sort of created this generation of people who find it audacious to pay for porn and, and almost like a, a point of embarrassment, like, oh my gosh, you would actually pay for porn, but it's free on the internet. And it's not. We know it's not. Yeah, it's You, you should be paying for your porn. Yeah. If you... If you want to create any sort of ethical uh, discussion around the way that you consume adult content, it needs to start by paying for it because otherwise you're you're not really putting your money where your mouth is, literally. With VR, I have found since my first ever VR live broadcast, the people who come and see me in VR say, you know, I've never paid for a porn experience in my life, but I would absolutely pay for this. And they do. And that's... What I see VR sort of changing the game on because we lost purchasing power mm-hmm. when people started downloading and sharing scenes illegally. The the sales in pre-recorded porn have dipped considerably, whereas the sales in live broadcasting and you know live camsites has remained a little bit more consistent than the general like porn production industry. And what I see with VR is a resurgence of people who are willing to pay for porn and understand that they need to pay for porn for it to be in the space at all, and high quality. And so that's sort of what I'm seeing with VR. It's it's not going to be the end-all be-all for the industry. I don't think anything will, but I do think that VR incentivizes people to pay for the content that they love. And especially in in a live cam in VR where people are already spending money on live cams, this is just exponentially better for for the performers, for the industry, and for the consumers. Yeah, and that's
0: and I mean everything you're saying as much it makes total sense intuitively, and it, and perhaps unsurprisingly to both our listeners and likely you, that's also all backed up by studies. Oh, be- throw some studies at me, girl!
1: I feel like I should be <laughs> tipping you right now.
0: <laughs> oh, well, it's just um, when they study people who pirate media—that's movies or music or books—there's this interesting correlation of people who pirate the most media are also the people who spend the most money. So people who pirate the most music are generally music lovers who are also buying hard-to-find albums, concert tickets, merch. They're promoting their favorite bands on Twitter. But that model does not hold up for porn, and there's a pretty easy cultural analysis of we generally believe writers and musicians and non-pornographic actors should get paid for their work and that's just not a belief that people hold for any sort of sexual labor Um,
1: you're absolutely right and i think part of that stems from this idea that porn stars are just millionaires like yeah where did that come from you know maybe 10 years or so ago porn stars were making a lot of money and they could absolutely make an entire living a very 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 comfortable living simply performing in productions Mm -hmm. but that changed and just like all the other industries changed porn did too but with music you're so excited to share music with your friends you're so excited to claim to be you know i was into that band before they were cool but who's (laughs) gonna say i was in that porn star before she was nominated for avn's like nobody like people make jokes about how there's social sharing options on porn sites like Of course I'm not going to share that on Facebook or Twitter. Oh, my gosh. Because people have so much stigma around their own sexual proclivities and the things that they're into, especially when you get into more nuanced niche territory. Like, the people who are into kinky, fetishy stuff are the ones who tend to be very um, silent about their interests in a public setting and especially in a social setting. So people aren't socially sharing adult content the the way they are with, with music or TV or movies, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, Uh,
0: Yep. Well, except on sex work Twitter where we tweet our friends all the time. Yeah. um...
1: I mean, exactly. (laughs) Like, We have no shame because it's not something that's shameful. It's not something (laughs) at all that you should be ashamed about. It's completely natural and literally nobody on this planet would be here if people hadn't had sex. It's true, it's true. And also, life would be a lot less fun.
0: So in your talking points, it also mentions cosplay and geek stuff. (laughs) What's your favorite? since I'm the resident nerd of our radio
1: team. The cosplay that I tend to do every year at Comic-Con, then I might have to retire soon because the crotch is sort of, the the threading is coming out on the crotch and I don't want to be that guy. (laughs) Um, But Batgirl, Barbara Gordon Batgirl, the purple and gold, because I used to be a librarian. I got my degree in library and information science and my master's when I was 21, and I became the associate director of a library when I was 22. And it was a reference librarian, and I ran a bunch of things. My library was very small, so we all did a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. I loved it. I love librarians. Libraries are amazing. People love to kind of crap on libraries and say, like, well, libraries aren't important anymore because of the Internet. But libraries are important because of the Internet. Absolutely. You can't access the databases on the Internet without – like, there are databases you cannot access for free. And there, are, those databases are the ones that your public library, your local library is subscribing to because they have enough of a membership in your community where they can afford to do that. There's a lot of people who are not privileged enough to have internet in their homes, even today. Mm-hmm. Um, and And when they do, it's not really as accessible. And even if it is accessible in your home, there's some stuff that you don't feel comfortable researching at home. Let's say you're a a young person who is trying to figure out how to come out as as your sexuality to your family. You're not going to feel comfortable searching that on your home computer because you don't know what your family is going to think. So the library serves that purpose. There are women who are trying to get out of dangerous marriages who can't do that research on their home computers. There's a lot of stuff that puts people at risk if they research it at home, and the libraries offer that, there are a lot of people who just simply don't have access to the internet in their homes—a much larger number than I think people would realize—for whom the the library is the only place they can access that. Who, you know, when I was a librarian, and this was several years ago, but it stands to reason, I had a week-long job, like a job fair sort of thing. It was like a, a week of programming based around employment. We had things like how to sign, how to sign up for sites like like job search sites, like monster.com or whatever, which was really big at the time, yeah. how to create a resume, how to do a cover letter, how to, we had mock interviews where people would come in and do an interview and we'd record it for them and give them tips. And I thought, you know, when I, the first day when I was like, okay, here's how you sign up to job search sites. How you, here's how you search for jobs on the internet. I thought I would be teaching people how to convey their skills through websites and through different services. What I actually was teaching people when it came down to it was which mouse button to click oh, because wow. there were people in my community that literally had never used a computer before. They didn't know how a mouse worked. They didn't know how the internet worked. I was setting up email addresses for them because they had never had one before and then signing them up for sites that they wanted to find jobs on. And then a, a significant portion of the time I was spending with them was teaching them like how to avoid, you know, people who are fishing for your information. Like if someone emails you claiming to be your family member. They're probably not unless yeah. you've given that family member your email. Like it, it was so much. It was such a, an awakening experience when I came from a background where I've been on the internet since fifth grade, mm-hmm. and these people still didn't even trust the internet. And so I think it's very easy to to see the world through your own eyes without considering the fact that a lot of people just don't have the same access that many people are used to. And those are the people who really benefit from libraries. Young, I mean, parents benefit from it. There are programs at your local library for, for kids. There's, I mean, your, your library, whoever you are listening to this right now, almost certainly has a children's department that has programming just for kids to give them access to community and to other people in that space and to, to new resources that they wouldn't otherwise have. I was the reference librarian, so I got to choose the reference books that cost, I mean, my reference budget was huge. So when I came into my job, I was like, oh my God, how am I ever gonna spend that much money? <laughs> and then I started buying, every month I would buy reference books and I would run out of money every time because reference books are expensive. Yeah. And you can, and even databases, the reference databases where you need specific information about certain data that isn't necessarily free online. It's not free to do that research, and it's not free to just put it out online. Like, that's stuff that your library can can get for you. It's so much more than just Google. People think librarians are just, like, Google specialists. It's so (laughs) not the case. And And, from an academic background, I'm right here on everything you're saying. And librarians have literally gone to prison to protect your rights. The... American Library Association has a a library bill of rights where people have the right to access information without being monitored and without um, giving up their right to intellectual freedom, which means when the FBI comes into your library and says, hey, I want to know everybody who's checked out this book, or I want to know all of the books this person has checked out, and they want to know all of the stuff that you're accessing personally at the library... Librarians literally tell them to f right off and go to prison as a result. I remember because, that that came up with when the Patriot Act passed. Yes, the Patriot Act was actually altered and changed to include certain uh, certain aspects of, of of libraries because with the Patriot Act, they came in and they said, "Hey, tell us everyone who's done this or this or every like everything this person has done." And librarians were like. F right off, no, we're not gonna do that. That's against our code of ethics. So librarians literally went to prison for that. And in that, uh, in the, the court cases that came about, I believe it was the FBI, I could be wrong, but basically they, they called them these radical militant librarians <laughs> are making their lives suck. <laughs> so the American Library Association made bumper stickers about how radical militant librarians are protecting my privacy. And it's so true. You think of librarians, I mean, through the pop pop culture lens, as these old women who are very conservative and just shushing you all day long, (laughs) but those women are willing to go to jail for you. So maybe be cool. I think
0: radically militant librarians is what I've always wanted to be when I grow up. And
1: the thing is, these radical militant librarians are not making, I mean, these are people who, by definition, to be a librarian, according to the American Library Association, which sort of dominates the industry, you have to have a master's degree, Mm -hmm. a, a bachelor's degree, a doctorate. No, it has to be an ALA approved master's degree program. You have to have a master's degree to be a librarian. So these are highly educated people who are Going to bat for your rights, because mm. that is what's right. And, and that's huge, you know? Yeah, oh, that's phenomenal. That
0: makes me love my library even more. Um, and I- they
1: don't get paid a lot of money. They get paid... I mean, I started doing porn because I started doing some fetish videos, and I got paid so much more doing fetish work and porn stuff that it was like, it, did, it didn't make sense for me to continue to be a librarian. That was but me these are working people, at a nonprofit, actually. That's it. That's exactly it. Like, these people are working really hard for a salary you'd be probably embarrassed to, to find out that these people are willing to go to jail for your rights and making the amount that they're making. Not that, I, I don't mean to condescend, but... Yeah, it's not neglectful. People should be paid it's... a lot more. Yeah, because exactly. Library budgets are some of the first budgets to be slashed when the economy is, you know, in the crapper. And once it's not anymore, libraries are some of the last to be restored finances for. And, uh, and yeah, like you should have so much respect for your librarians because the work they're doing is absolutely from passion and, and they're amazing. Yes. You know, there are so many discoveries that are made and they get attributed to one person or one organization, when in fact, it's the collaboration between many, many, many people and many research studies and many organizations. And it's, you know, it's, it's a collaboration. And so it's really unfortunate how people get overlooked in the work that they do. I don't know. It's, I don't know the solution. I don't know the way to, to write that
0: uh i don't I don't either but but, I know what's gonna make things worse, and that seems to be
1: the train that we're on yeah, but this anti intellectualism where people pride themselves in not being intellectual and this this weird trend where not subscribing to academia makes you somehow better like i I don't like the idea of people who happen to be privileged enough to access academics and access you know the ability to have a college education as being better than anyone, but at the same time it's really sad that, as a culture we're turning against intellectualism and and research and science in mm-hmm. favor of you know good feelings or or great you know bylines
0: well and at the end of the day i would rather have somebody who is trained in research about the environment making decisions about the environment because or
1: education or any of the many <laughs> things that we're seeing right now uh yeah yeah that, yeah <laughs> sort of the tagline of people these days so to try to wrap things up
0: on an optimistic note what do you hope to see in the future in terms of Los Angeles sex work, activism, and organizing? What do you think is the best best case scenario of where do we go from here?
1: Where do we go from here? I think a big step would be in enabling the adult community and the workers in particular to have a voice in establishing what the workplace standards should be whether it's safety in terms of the testing that we use which is very thorough in case anybody listening doesn't know for <laughs> porn performers for most porn that is made we follow a very specific protocol that is established it was established years ago oh where, and who um, pays for that protocol who who carries the burden of paying for that performers pay for their own testing But there is also a testing, uh, the performer availability scheduling system has been created by the Free Speech Coalition and is funded by many of their supporters. Every two weeks, if you're a porn performer, you have to have, within the past two weeks, a test. Mm -hmm. We test for HIV, chlamydia, gonorrhea, hep B, hep C, syphilis, and trichomoniasis. Every two weeks. And we use the best tests on the market. So when you go to your... Local clinic, and you get a test for HIV and it's free, that's what's called the ELISA test, and that has a window period of a few months. What we use is the Aptima RNA test, and that tests for the RNA of the actual HIV virus, and that has a window period of less than 10 days. So we get tested every 14 days for this, for all of this huge barrage of tests. So we are the most tested population on the planet, and probably the safest. In term, I mean, I, I don't like to use that word as a value judgment, but the safest in terms of STI prevention, fairly expensive when we pay for it ourselves as performers. And it is a tax write-off, but it's, you know, quite yeah. a bit. It's $155 to $165 per test twice a month. And you have to do and, that in order to work. And you have to. It's it's not something that, like, a few people are like, oh, you should probably do this. It's a regulation that has been established within our industry for Gosh, thirteen years at this point. And thirteen years ago it wasn't quite as, as stringent as it is now. And we increase the protocols as science and testing develops. So we are an incredibly safe population. And I represent an organization that represents probably half of the active performers in the community, at least in Los Angeles. And our our membership has voted we actually took a poll of all of our membership and probably ninety-eight percent want the option we we want testing as the main standard as the main protocol with the option to use condoms as necessary as we as we choose. And so condoms exclusively don't make sense. Many if if not most performers are actually opposed to condoms, myself included, because in a professional setting, condoms are not as safe as they would be in your personal life. We are almost Olympic level sex (laughs) performers. Frequently, we have sex with people we're not personally attracted to because that's our job. And when you're not personally attracted to someone, your body doesn't make the same lubricants as it would if it was someone you were just choosing to have sex with. So as a result, when you introduce condoms in a long-term, several-hour engagement and with someone you might not even be attracted to, there's friction from that latex, or even if it's not latex, there's a friction that's introduced that can cause abrasions within your body that makes you more at risk for bacterial infections and viral infections because with those abrasions, with that abrasive, that abrasive performance with the condom, you're opening, like the skin is becoming open and when you have open skin, you're certainly more at risk for for infection whether that's some kind of STI or just a regular bacterial infection or a yeast infection or what have you. Most performers want the option, but most performers at the end of the day wouldn't choose it for themselves. And well, um, that's what we're trying to communicate.
0: Well, especially because, you know, the same protection will never work for every situation or every scene even. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. I'm Ah, thank you so much for talking to me. And for going well over our allotted time. I, I tend to also love talking about this forever and ever. How can people find you? What is the best way to learn more news about these things that these amazing things you've been telling us about?
1: Well, you should go to cam4.com slash VR. That's C-A-M, the numeral four, slash VR to learn more about the awesome work that I do and the things that I'm incredibly proud of. You can find me on Twitter at Ella Darling, that's E-L-A Darling, and all the other social media if you really want to. I don't know, I'm kind of grandma. I'm on on Instagram. I don't really use much else. I mean, not really. Ella Darling on Twitter and Instagram, and really, go to cam4.com slash VR to learn more about the thing that I'm super jazzed about, because I think you're going to have a lot of fun with it, and I certainly do. Yay! Thank you! (gasps) Thank you! And that is it
0: for this show! For more interviews and episodes of On The Dresser, check out our podcasts on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes, all under On The Dresser, and we would love it if you subscribed and shared us with all of your friends. And we would love to hear back from you. Please send us your thoughts or record us a note on your phone. You can send it to onthedresser at gmail.com or via Twitter at onthedresser. I am also on Twitter and Instagram. You can find me at XOXO Lauren L-A-U-R-E-N-K-I-L-E-Y. And I want to thank my magnificent production team, Dr. Vanessa Carlisle and Danny Cruz, and thank you, Lou Gomez, for all of our music. And thank you. Thank you for listening to our podcast, and thank you for continuing to support discussions led by queers, sex workers, and sex educators. All power to the people, all pleasure to the people, Good night and good far.